0: Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me?
1: Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Excellent. Great to have you on as always. And folks, we've got something for you today. Uh, or Peter has, been working hard on this presentation as he does on all of his presentations. This one's called Leon de Grel's Real Story of the Eastern Front. Now, the name Leon de is very familiar to me, but I've never actually looked up or really studied the guy. So this is going to be a real learning experience for me. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today?
1: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Leon de Grel is a Belgian political leader who was a volunteer on the Eastern Front, fought three and a half years in the Eastern Front, a phenomenal combat record. And he's written the book, The Eastern Front, subtitled Memoirs of a Waffen-SS Volunteer, 1941 to 1945. And I must say, as somebody who has been a soldier and just about every male member of my family, going back to the Napoleonic Wars have been soldiers and it's entrenched in my family, and I've always been interested in history. I have read a lot of war books, many great books on on war. And uh, remember one of the earliest ones that I ever uh, read was uh, the, uh, the First and the Last by Adolf Garland, who is uh, the commander of German uh, fighter pilot forces. And Adolf Garland's First and the Last, which was staggeringly interesting. And uh, then also read uh, Night Fighter and uh, Guderian's uh, Panzer Leader and uh, uh, Rommel and uh, so many different uh, good books on, on different aspects of war but I've never read a combat book that's on this level I must say I think Leander Grills
0: Peter are you still with me you just dropped out
1: Um, Andrew I can hear you can you hear me
0: yeah I can hear you now uh, you got up to you were oh, saying right. that Leo. yeah go ahead
1: Yes. So, well, good on the internet uh, connectivity, but we can only hope and pray for the best. Uh, Leon de uh, Eastern Front is the best first-hand account of war I've ever read. Uh, it is a gripping first-person memoir of soldiers, sacrifice, heroism, intense, fierce combat against colossal numerically superior Soviet forces. And you know, this, this book is actually, uh, I think, essential reading for anyone who really wants to understand the Second World War, because I think most people don't know that much about the Eastern Front. And the Eastern Front was the biggest part of the war. In fact, not only was it the greatest land battle and greatest conflict in all of history, in terms of the numbers of soldiers involved, millions, tens of millions involved in the Eastern Front battles. Not only that, but in terms of the numbers of tanks the largest tank battles, the largest air battles, the largest uh, infantry battles, never has there been anything to compare in terms of the death toll, in terms of the expenditure of uh, ordnance, weapons, bullets, bombs, Uh, just on every level, the the logistics involved, the amount of territory fought over, uh, the amount of people uh, involved and, and millions killed in the combat. When you Think of the Second World War. Honestly, this Eastern Front was more than ninety percent of the entire Second World War, and we delude ourselves if we think that uh, the Second World War was about anything much else other than the colossal conflict against communism, against Bolshevism, against Stalin's Soviet Union. And the Eastern Front was the very front line of the war for Europe and for freedom and for Christian civilization. And uh, here we've got a first-hand memoir. Uh, uh, combat book written by a Belgian, a Belgian who is quite an extraordinary character. Uh, Leon de Grel, interestingly enough, when he enlisted as a volunteer to fight on the Eastern Front, he was 35 years old and he had never fired a gun up till the point when he joined the army to be part of a pan-European campaign against the Soviet Union. And what's fascinating is that there were half a million european non-german european volunteers who volunteered to join the waffen ss to fight in a pan-european force on the eastern front against the bolsheviks and that's 250,000 people from 30 countries in europe and there were spanish brigades there were uh, there were were volunteers who came in uh, great numbers from belgium from the netherlands from norway uh, from france Uh, but what may surprise people is people come from neutral countries there were contingents coming from Spain, large amounts, Sweden and Switzerland, even there were there were even South Africans, there were even some British and Americans uh, who uh, joined the Waffen SS were part of the uh, war on the Eastern Front. And uh, this, this conflict was so huge and so great, over 1000s of kilometres, and involving 10s of 1000s of aircraft and tanks involved in uh, the most amazing battles and the most brutal conflicts in the history of the world. So if you just take, for example, the death toll of German soldiers and uh, the fact is that 90 percent of German soldiers who died in the Second World War died in the Eastern Front. And when people uh, have this attitude of, for example, you'll hear some people say about how how England uh, beat Germany in the Second World War. Well, actually, the the English uh, forces including the um, RAF, uh, the Royal Navy and the Army um, caused less than 4% of the total casualties of the uh, German Wehrmacht, Kriegsmarine and Luftwaffe. And uh, so on every level, the Americans accounted for 5% and uh, a lot of that would have been at the hands of Patton's Third Army. But when it comes to uh, the main thrust, focus and emphasis of the Second World War, it has to be the Eastern Front, and I think we all have a vague idea of what was involved in the Eastern Front, and I actually know some people who fought there. Um, there was uh, a, a Stuka pilot who was uh, lived close to us in Samst West, only died a few years ago in, in 2010, that we got first-hand accounts from, and he actually knew um, uh, Rudel, who was uh, the greatest uh, tank buster in history, a uh, Stuka pilot who destroyed over a thousand Uh, Russian tanks during during his time in Eastern Front and hearing from people who were involved there, I've gotten some insights, but nobody has opened up to us the reality of what the Eastern Front was like uh, than Leander Grel. And Leander Grel is a really fascinating character uh, because uh, he was actually uh, born in in Belgium to a very well-off family and uh, at age 29 he founded A political party called the Rexist Party and it was Rex which is the word for king in Latin and it was referring to Christ the King and so it was a Christian party a Catholic nationalist party the Rexist Party and at his first uh, elections he founded in 1935 and in 1936 uh, they won uh, the largest um, Uh, amount ever for a first party. They got 11% of the votes in Belgium's 1936 parliamentary elections. And so he, um, as a person who'd studied law and uh, who'd gone into journalism and uh, he had started a political party, he was actually the youngest political leader in all of Europe at just the age of 29. And he had shaken his country to the core and had hundreds of thousands of men, women and young people. Uh, following him in this rexist movement, which was very much a force for reform uh, to kick out the corrupt gangs, as he put it, and to shake up uh, Belgium and uh, uh, to be able to particularly fight against communism. And so, uh, interestingly, while he initially, of course, did a lot in 1939 to try and ward off the Second World War, didn't want to see uh, Belgium, his home country and Germany, fight against one another, but fight together against communism, uh, when Germany invaded on the 10th of May 1940 uh, he was arrested uh, and charged with being a collaborator uh, with the Germans and he was shipped off to France and only the speed of the blitzkrieg enabled him to be freed and uh, when he came back uh, he uh, enlisted as a private in a volunteer legion to particularly go and fight on the Eastern Front against the Bolsheviks and so uh, interesting because he had organized this large group out of his Rexist party support base. Uh, he was offered uh, to start as a Lieutenant as an officer in the, in the army. And, uh, he said, no, he had started as a private and, uh, he started as a private and he worked his way up. He earned every single stripe from corporal through Sergeant, uh, all the way up to Lieutenant Colonel. And ultimately at the very end of the war, he was uh, promoted to general. So, uh, I don't know of another story of someone who in three and a half years could go from private to to general, uh, and he was involved in 75 battles. He was wounded seven times. Uh, He won 22 medals or military decorations, including the Knight's Cross, which is the highest award Germany can give, and even the coveted oak leaves to the Knight's Cross, which was personally bestowed on him by the Fuhrer on 27th of August 1944, he was the first non-German to be awarded the coveted oak leaves to the Knight's Cross. And uh, he was one of only two non-Germans to win the oak leaves to the Knight's Cross. And he led, uh, he started just as normal volunteer, but he, he led in the end, he became the commander of the 28th SS Waffen SS division, the Walloon division or the Belgian division. And uh, of the original... 300 men who volunteered for the Eastern Front. Uh, there were uh, only six who survived the war out of 300. And uh, they lost 2500 Walloons or Belgians uh, in his division, uh, fell on the Eastern Front, uh, died in combat. Uh, so his insights and his reports are absolutely staggering. He takes you uh, and I don't think I've ever come across any war book that that helps one to understand what winter war was like uh, the winter war on the donuts and how they were down to minus 30 degrees and they didn't have winter clothing. They didn't. The winter clothing didn't reach them in time. The winter came early. They were caught in this absolute Arctic hell and they fighting there in in Ukraine um, with no real shelter. The, the conditions were there was so much lice uh, in, in uh, the places that they went, uh, these thatched roof huts uh, that the peasants in Ukraine stayed in. And they, they were in clothes that hadn't been washed in weeks and then months and festering wounds. Uh, he was wounded himself seven times and describing how they, they were having to fight without Arctic clothing in minus 30 degrees uh, 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 conditions. And then in the space of barely a week. They moved from minus 30 below to, to plus 30. Uh, and he saw the, the temperature range go from so icy, where there was uh, bodies and everything were just uh, encrusted in ice, and uh, the snow had turned to ice, and, and they've got corpses around them. And suddenly, uh, as the thaw comes, and there are bodies floating and uh, corpses flying all over the place and the the conditions in which they had to deal with where they would have these human wave attacks of tens of thousands of uh, what he called the Asiatic hordes and uh, coming pouring upon them and how they were continually having to be careful for shortage of ammunition, not enough supplies, not enough medicine, Uh, the people who wounded putting them on sleds and uh, trying to get them to some hospital conditions, uh, people losing limbs from frostbite. The conditions in which they fought are mind-numbing, and uh, I don't think there is an epic in the history of warfare to compare with the sacrifices that were made on the Eastern Front. 30 different countries of Europe contributed uh, uh, to this pan-European force. uh, 250,000 volunteers. So Amongst the millions of Germans on the Eastern Front, there were a quarter million volunteers who came from countries like Belgium, France, Norway, and Sweden. So, amazing. And uh, to think that these these Belgian volunteers, they, they didn't have to be there. They weren't conscripted. They chose to be there. And they stayed. And, and the Walloon division was regularly called upon uh, to be at the front. And uh, when there were retreats needed, they were often the ones who were... Uh, holding the line at the back, and they were they were the ones to keep back the enemy while uh, the rest of the units were able to escape from the traps of encirclement and all the different battles across the Battle of Kharkov and uh, fighting to the Caucasus. So they went all the way across Ukraine, walked until they got into the Caucasian mountains, which is where the mountains of Ararat are, where Noah's Ark ended up, and they're fighting in the Caucasian mountains against, in many cases, an unseen enemy surrounded by corpses, the dead and the dying, and uh, continually at the extension, furthest extension of the line, uh, not enough supplies, inadequate ammunition, not enough medical supplies, seldom any air support whatsoever, and uh, it was a rare event when they got some air support. And getting uh, a dug in on the Dnaipa River and one of the most gripping epics is uh, the Battle of Cherkassy. Cherkassy uh, was a, a salient that got encircled, and there were a huge German uh, army that was basically in danger of getting encircled by a colossal uh, amount of, of divisions of the Soviets that had surrounded them. And so they had to fight their way out of what they call the Cherkassy pocket with a walloon, Legion, uh, doing the uh, delaying action, holding the line at the back, and as they fought their way through there, through absolute uh, walls of fire and shot and Stalin organ rockets being poured upon them, and continually, always outnumbered, and regularly making daring charges, going behind enemy lines, capturing uh, prisoners for intelligence purposes, coming back and getting the information needed and uh, he was personally involved in over 75 combats. Uh, There were times that, uh, and he describes in great detail, how they would fight on one occasion for 126 hours straight without any sleep. There was another time when they were fighting for seven days and all they got in that time was two hours sleep in, in seven days of constant combat. And we know what it can be like with soldiers who experience shell shock, and sometimes people have been exposed to combat for a few days, and over a few days uh, of of constant bombardment, uh, a person's nerves uh, can be absolutely frayed. And if you're deprived of sleep, and if you're deprived of proper food, and if you're wounded and have medical needs, and there's no medicines available, uh, one can imagine how people develop shell shock. But what these Buffonistes volunteers by the hundreds of thousands.
0: You uh, dropped out again, Peter. Um, oh, okay. Uh, oh, um, you're still there. That's good. Carry we, on.
1: Are we back in? Uh, yep, well, this is the thing about our internet connectivity over the oceans and the hemispheres. So they actually had uh, so many times when... They had no chance to sleep for days on end, fighting 24 hours uh, uh, constant non-stop, and through days of constant attacks and counterattacks and being told to go in and take this position that had been lost again, absolutely essential. So the rest of these units with all the wounded could escape uh, the trap of the Soviets. And, and the Soviets had all the advantages. And one of the things that comes through here is that when they started they recognized that this was a great crusade in fact his description is that uh, we we were christian knights holding back the hordes of bolsheviks that were inevitably going to doom the world if we did not stand fast and so he describes this titanic fight against the bolshevik enemy the the communist enemy which is the enemy of all civilization the enemy of christianity the in its enemy of europe and uh, this gripping, blood-drenched, often shocking accounts of what they had to endure and what they went through. And the thing that continually uh, strikes me is the fact that they had, at all times, an enemy that was 10 times more numerous than them or more. They were outnumbered colossally, often 20, 30, 40 times as many Soviets in the Red Army opposing them as they had. Sometimes they had several miles to care for of a front, with just a few hundred of their men spread out over several miles. And on the other side, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands coming. They were sometimes uh, so rationed because of lack of supplies and logistical supply lines that the artillery would be allowed to fire only three shots a day. Uh, They were even reduced towards the end with one artillery shot a day. And where they were rationed with the amount of grenades and and, uh, machine gun bullets and so on. And uh, how they continually beat the Soviets and how they were shocked and overwhelmed as how is it possible that we are, we're destroying so much of the enemy and we're destroying so much of the Air Force and of their of their tanks, thousands of Soviet tanks destroyed, where are the rest these coming. And when the shock came to them, that even before Pearl Harbor, even before the Americans entered the war in on the 7th of December 1941, the Americans were flooding the Soviet Union with High-tech weaponry with uh, tens of thousands of jeeps, tens of thousands of trucks, with tens of thousands of tanks, with tens of thousands of aircraft, fighter aircraft, bomber aircraft, and tens of billions of rounds of ammunition, and tens of millions of artillery rounds, and the huge lend-lease uh, checklist that of of a free uh, high-tech weaponry. Uh, that was sent through to the Soviets by the United States, of America, by Canada, and by Great Britain. Just boggles the brain. So that here, these these poor volunteers from thirty countries in Europe were fighting against all odds against communism, and they regularly had victory in their grasp, and then only to see more and more and more tanks and trucks and aircraft and weaponry uh, appearing on the other side, which came from the arsenal of democracy, the 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 West. America, Britain, and uh, staggered to see on the other side, uh, you know, how did how did they get um, uh, these um, uh, American bombers and Spitfires and Hurricanes and so on from from Britain? And uh, why are our Christian brothers and cousins in the West providing weaponry to the Soviet Union, the most brutal, sadistic, totalitarian, mass murdering dictatorship in history of the world? And uh, here they were fighting against what was obviously evil, the Soviet Union, and they were uh, finding in the end that while the Soviets had this unlimited manpower of tens of millions that they could put in uniform and throw against them, the uniforms even being provided by the West. I mean, it It's just staggering. 15 million boots were provided by America for the Red Army alone, just for example, and you know, billions of buttons and it just from the socks and the uh, the clothes. So a lot of what people thought for the arsenal of democracy didn't go to help democracy at all, but went to help the dictatorship of the Soviet Union uh, in uh, on the other side. And, and when they would really find that they're so short of supplies and ammunition and clothes, and then they found that on the other side, there was no shortage. And uh, it was just staggering to think of this fight against all odds. And this is a an incredible epic. So going through de three and a half years of constant combat on the Eastern Front, uh, being wounded seven times, uh, being promoted regularly uh, because of his extraordinary leadership and also because of officers uh, uh, above being killed and uh, needing to, to take the lead. And he was involved in the battle also for Estonia and the descriptions of the uh, colossal atrocities being committed by the Red Army when the Soviets moved into an area, what they did to the civilians it just beyond comprehension and the the absolute panic and to uh, you get the feel as you go through this Eastern Front book by Leander Grill of the real suffering of the civilians. when the Germans and the European volunteers uh, on the Eastern Front came throughout Ukraine they were welcomed as liberators, they were welcomed by the people as saviors, the people were throwing flowers at them, bringing out uh, food, um, uh, hugging them, kissing them, greeting them with great enthusiasm. They had the joy to meet in churches that had been closed under the Soviets. But now the uh, Orthodox priests come and open up the church and, uh, you know, his comment as a Catholic um, worshipping with the Orthodox people in Ukraine, but still feeling that there's this bond, that we we have a common allegiance to Jesus Christ. He's our king. and Uh, To see that the the appreciation and love of the people, including in Georgia and other Caucasian areas where they liberated uh, during the the, uh, battles against the Red Army. And then the desperateness of the civilians as they were forced to retreat against overwhelming odds. How many of the civilians in these areas wanted to come with them and travel with them and stay under protection of the German army? This is a very different picture to what Hollywood's given us. And it's a very different picture to the pseudo-history that we've been getting in uh, too many uh, textbooks and uh, uh, relations about the Second World War. And it's it's interesting that this book has been praised even in a U.S. Army uh, magazine. Uh, American Army Brigadier General John Bunsen wrote of this book uh, by Leon de Grel, Eastern Front. The pace of the writing is fast. The action is graphic. A warrior can learn things from reading this book. I recommend it to reading by students of the art of war. It is well worth the price. And so uh, there's many who have looked and said, this is the very best combat account of war ever written. And uh, I, I must say, uh, it it regularly left me feeling shell-shocked myself, even though I've experienced war and I've experienced bombing and I've been under and ambushed and so on. But... I must say, I regularly thought what I've experienced and what my father experienced in the Eighth Army in North Africa is nothing compared to what these people experienced in the Eastern Front. And we regularly were outnumbered and fighting against the Cubans and the Marxists and Angola. uh, We knew what it was like to be way uh, outnumbered and for the other side to have a lot more equipment, but nothing on the scale of what happened on the Eastern Front. This was the greatest conflict in history. And there's been so few films made about. There's been so few books produced on it. And I am so grateful that a man like Leander Grell, an obviously uh, brilliant uh, intellectual person, uh, uh, a person who's so observant, and his memory and his attention to detail, very striking. He's a gifted writer. And uh, in fact, he's written 12 books, uh, I believe. And interestingly, at one point, after fighting against the Marxists on the Eastern Front for over three years, he was uh, brought back to Belgium and he was given the largest mass welcome in Belgian history. Two million Belgians lined the streets of Brussels to chair this returning colonel, this hero uh, from the Eastern Front. So interesting how uh, they have tried to portray it that uh, uh, these collaborators were so unpopular, but apparently not that unpopular. There were millions of Belgians who... Who supported and shared and uh, and recognised that they were sacrificing for all of Europe, and they were uh, seeking to protect not only Germany but protect all of Europe and Belgium too, uh, from Marxism and from the inevitable destructions that would come. So this is an eye-opening book. It's a it's it's real history, and it's a break from the typical. Uh, narrative that we are given of the Second World War as the good war, and so on. Well, um, it was a good war in the sense of the cause of fighting against communism. Uh, But I'm afraid as my friend, uh, Ian Smith, who was once the Prime Minister of Rhodesia, and who fought all six years in the Royal Rhodesian Air Force in the Second World War in North Africa, Italy, and uh, uh, he said, with hindsight, we were on the wrong side. He said, We thought we were fighting for Christian civilization, we thought we were fighting for freedom, and yet it turned out we were allied to the most anti-Christian, anti-civilization force in history, the Soviet Union. And uh, he said, um, under the circumstances, with hindsight, it would be better if we had lost, or even better still, if we had actually been on the other side fighting against the communists and not with them. And uh, I, I think that's that's an insight anybody who reads this book would have to come to the the uh, absolute agony of the civilians in the Ukraine as the German army was forced to retreat and as they recognised that what their fate was going to be at the hands of the Red Army and then in Estonia, one of the Baltic states, as they were fighting in, in beautiful little Estonia and the savagery of the Red Army in targeting civilians in. In particularly, coming down and machine gunning the uh, wagon carts, the ox carts, the uh, the little wooden uh, wheelbarrows being pushed along by some peasants trying to escape the t- approach of the Red Army, and they would deliberately target civilians uh, strung uh, out there on uh, all exposed on a road, and and the the savagery of what they did to the civilians, and of course there were times. Uh, that the Walloon Regiment were in a counterattack and they, they took an area that had fallen under the Soviets uh, shortly before, such as in Estonia or Ukraine and, and in Pomerania. And the atrocities that they saw of how the women were targeted, the rapes, the crucifixions, the savagery, the mutilations of people, that, you know, for people to swallow the Hollywood version of, of the good war, and to think of our gallant Russian allies and Uncle Joe and all this other propaganda uh, that was thrown out during the Second World War. When you get the first-hand accounts of what actually happened, and uh, some of the listeners may have read Hellstorm and know what real atrocities were and what the greatest suffering any civilians have had to endure in any war in all of history, uh, Hellstorm documents it. But I think this book, the Eastern Front gives you an understanding of what soldiers had to go through, had to face, and are sacrificed, not just for a few days or weeks or months, but for years on the Eastern Front, through the most prone, numbing, icy cold, through to the most uh, sun-baked heat uh, of, of the summers, you know, from extremes. They I said, literally in, in a week, you could go from from 30 degrees below to 30 degrees above. And you could you could go from ice uh, to mud uh, and and blazing heat in the space of a week. Uh, the, the extremes of the climate then, and the agony uh, in the Baltic, as uh, one of the other, the Baltic states fell, and as Prussia fell, and as the uh, people were fleeing by boat and fleeing by road, and the deliberate targeting of the Allies, talking about the air powers, uh, the Red Army in particular, and their targeting of the refugee boats, the hospital ships like the Willem Gustav, which had 10,000 civilians on board, 9,000 drowned in icy waters of a, a clearly lit up uh, ship, which was uh, on a mission of mercy, a hospital ship evacuating civilians, 4,000 infants amongst them, and uh, uh, torpedoed in Uh, sub-zero conditions on the Baltic Sea and and so much of the eyewitness account of the the courage of the volunteers in the Eastern Front, uh, the suffering of the civilians, uh, the atrocities of the Red Army, uh, the real motivation behind, because you've got to ask yourself what motivated a man who was a brilliant intellectual, who was from a top family, who was the most colorful and youngest political leader in, in Europe. Uh, what would have motivated someone like Leon de Grille and 250,000 other people in Europe to volunteer for the worst, uh, most dangerous, uh, colossal conflict in the history of the world, the Eastern Front in Operation Barbarossa against the Soviet Union, uh, just staggering. And the motivations are there. And uh, I, I can read straight from what Leon de Grille Uh, said he he uh, writes in his book he said
0: go ahead peter
1: yes andrew yeah can you start Uh, the quote again again? you just
0: yeah i can hear you now you just before you were going to start the quote go ahead
1: so he said we fought for europe we fought for the faith we fought for its civilization we fought to the very heights of sincerity and to the very limits of sacrifice. And we fought knowing that people should recognize the justice of our cause and the purity of our gift. And they, they, and he says at the very end, he regrets nothing about the war except that we lost. He said, I kept my strength, I would kept my faith. And despite the fact that at the end, uh, in order to escape uh, being uh, treated as so many others were uh, by the vengeful victors, He uh, escaped through Denmark into Norway, and he chartered a Heinkel 111 and uh, flew it over 1,500 miles to Spain. And it was beyond the limits of their actual uh, fuel consumption range. It was beyond the the range of the aircraft. Uh, But they managed to get just to and crash uh, at the beach uh, at the northernmost point of of Spain and... uh, uh, tremendous uh, injuries uh bones broken, hospitalized for many months afterwards. but as he said, he had survived and his faith uh, and his strength were intact and uh, he said that uh, we recognized that uh, our cause, our just cause of fighting for freedom and for justice and for Europe and fighting against bolshevism and communism, would be recognized and would be appreciated in later years and uh, I think that this book is a tremendous monument to many brave soldiers who fought on the Eastern Front. And if if we've got the idea that the Eastern Front was a sideshow, just one of many, uh, or if we don't appreciate that the Eastern Front was the main focus of the Second World War, and the real conflict of the Second World War was the war against Bolshevism, then it makes it even more incredible that we would have in any way wanted to uh, aid the Soviet Union. Uh, it's it's one thing if you say, well, I don't want to get involved in it, but it's another thing to actually aid and abet the enemy. And uh, last week we were looking at Hess, Churchill, Hitler, and the real turning point of the Second World War, a secret history. And uh, 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 Peter Padbury's uh, book on Hess's peace mission of May 1941 comes into starker focus when you recognize what The conflict was all about on the Eastern Front and uh, how on one side you had people who were noble and who treated the civilians and the captured soldiers with uh, honor and with integrity and who cared uh, for the wounded of of all sides, including of the enemy. And then on the other side, you've got savagery and uh, absolute brutality and sadistic uh, malice uh, beyond anything that the human mind could comprehend of what they would inflict not just on captured enemy but what they would do to civilians and churches and pastors in ukraine and in latvia and in germany itself and so uh, i must say i think uh, along with the book that i mentioned last week on on hess the real turning point of the second world war this book the eastern front by leander grill is absolutely essential for a full understanding of what was at stake in Second World War and what's so gripping here is uh, not only the continual fight against all odds and uh, with so little adequate support and supply and air cover, uh, but the, the absolute uh, joy and uh, the, the wholehearted sincerity of these volunteers. And I think that's something that's, that's particularly gripping is when you're dealing with an all volunteer army. That explains why their morale was so high, but to keep your morale up high for a few battles is one thing, but to keep up your morale for three and a half years of uh, the most severe, no holds barred, colossal, titanic conflict against the Red Army, which was made up of hundreds of divisions with tens of millions of manpower and uh, just what they were undertaking. And to know that in fact, the Operation Barbarossa should have succeeded, in fact, did succeed, but for the capitalists of the West under Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill mobilizing lend lease to save the Soviet Union, to send them the billions of dollars worth of high tech weaponry, uh, tanks, fighter aircraft, bomber aircraft, jeeps, trucks, weapons, bombers, machine guns, artillery pieces, bombs, all the way down to the buttons and the boots and the uniforms, to think that the West not only bankrolled the Soviet Union, but saved the Soviet Union from collapse. Uh, This is why when I started my work in Eastern Europe, uh, going all the way across Eastern Europe from one side to the other, I heard people in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Bulgaria, in Hungary, in Yugoslavia, Romania, complaining, why did you betray us? And Ukrainians and Latvians and Lithuanians asking me these questions, why did you betray us? at first I was staggered because I thought you know we were the good guys and we fought to save the world and uh, we uh, were fighting for Christian civilization and and for freedom and uh, but that's not the way the Christians in Eastern Europe it. and the people that I've ministered with Christians across Eastern Europe uh, they see the battle very clearly from Finland in the north all the way down to Albania in the south they told me directly that the war was a war against communism. It was nationalism against communism. It was Europe against Bolshevism. And you chose to help the Soviet Union. Speaking about uh, us being South Africans, British, uh, the the Americans, and others, that we were aiding their enemy, uh, who made them suffer for 45 years after the Second World War, after the betrayal of all these places to uh, uh, under the Yalta Agreement. And I must say, it is treacherous. And uh, I have uh, I've lived my life among soldiers and working among soldiers and studying war and meeting with, with uh, combat veterans. And I have never read anything that compares with the Eastern Front Memoirs of waffen S Frontier 1941 to 1945. This book by Leon de Grill is not only the best written book I've ever read on, on uh, war or combat anywhere but it's of the most colossal conflict in the history of mankind and one of the most important and momentous. And I believe this helps us to see why the world we're in is in the mess we're in today. We're in a mess we're in today because at a critical time in history, i.e. 1941, uh, many of our leaders at that time chose to support the Bolshevik cause and chose to bankrupt the Bolshevik cause and chose to send them the tanks and trucks and weaponry that they couldn't have made themselves in the same quantities or quality, uh, which enabled the Soviet Union, the worst dictatorship in the history of the world, to survive. And it spelled doom to tens of millions of people, most of them Christians, in Russia, Ukraine, all the way across Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania. Yugoslavia, including Croatia, Slovenia, all the way down to Albania, they all suffered as a result of the failure of Operation Barbarossa, which actually didn't fail in and of itself. If it was just Operation Barbarossa, Germany and European volunteers against Soviet Union, they would have won already at the end of 1941. It was the Western weapons and technology transfer and all the vast lend-lease donations made to the Soviet Union that's what tipped the scale. And there are Russian uh, historians, military historians who agree and say uh, Lend-Lease was the decisive factor that enabled the Soviet Union to stay in the war beyond 1941. Otherwise, they would have been knocked out because the entire Red Army, Air Force and Tank Corps had been wiped out in the first few months of Operation Barbarossa. And if it wasn't for all the, that the West was able to supply, uh, they couldn't have possibly survived. So I, I believe that uh, Leon de Grille's book Whether you agree with him or not, there's no doubt that we have to respect his courage and his conviction, and anybody who can be involved in 70 uh, different uh, combat battles, who can be wounded seven times, who can uh, be awarded 22 medals, who can go from private all the way through to a colonel, and then even at the last days of the war to general, um, uh, obviously is an extraordinary person. And he's certainly an absolutely amazing author. So I highly recommend this book. And I believe that any of our listeners who go through The Eastern Front by Leon de Grel, uh, will get an appreciation. And I think it will humble us all to recognize the sacrifices that uh, another generation made for our freedom and uh, the treachery that that snatched victory from their hands after all their sacrifices that They were not able to achieve what by rights they should have. And what a different world we would be in if the Soviet Union had been extinguished in 1941. If we didn't have communism and the Cold War and uh, one third of the world falling under communist control uh, without the Soviet Union's aid, Mao Zedong wouldn't have got red China. And we don't know how that story is going to end and North Korean. So there's so many other things to follow on with this. The implications are huge. But uh, I must say, um, just going through these staggering insights into what soldiers had to endure, and what they achieved against all odds, um, I must say people like Leander Grill have my highest respect uh, for uh, courage, for conviction, for staying power, for perseverance, uh, to remain courageous under pretty constant fire for three and a half years in the worst hellhole against the greatest imbalance of forces uh, against all odds is uh, an astounding achievement. So, back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And uh, that was a fascinating account of uh, the subject of Leon de Graal. Uh, while you've been uh, talking, I've uh, been making the notes for the show post, I've also found uh, some um, World War 2 related uh, information from my book the synagogue of satan so i'm going to read that out in the last few minutes of the show 1933 on january the 30th adolf hitler becomes chancellor of germany he expels the jews as communists out of all governmental positions within germany interestingly at the time the number of jews in germany's government was over twenty times those in their government since the end of world war One. as a result of this expulsion in july the jews hold a world conference in amsterdam during which they demand that hitler reinstate every jew back to his former position Hitler refuses, and as a result of this, Samuel Untermeyer, the Ashkenazi Jew who blackmailed President Wilson and is now the head of the American delegation and the president of the whole conference, returns to the United States and makes a speech on radio which was transcribed in the New York Times on Monday, August 7th, 1933. And in the speech, he made the following statements. The Jews are the aristocrats of the world. Our campaign is the economic boycott against all German goods, shipping and services. What we are proposing is to prosecute a purely defensive economic boycott that will undermine the Hitler regime and bring the German people to their senses by destroying their export trade, on which their very existence depends. Each of you, Jew and Gentile alike, must refuse to deal with any merchant or shopkeeper who sells any German-made goods or who patronizes German ships or shipping. Uh, subsequently, to um, Back to my text, two-thirds of, the Germany's, two-thirds of Germany's food supply would have to be imported and could only be imported with the proceeds of what they exported. So if Germany could not export, two-thirds of Germany's population would starve, as there would not be enough food for more than one-third of the population. Nevertheless, Jews throughout America participated in this boycott, protesting outside and damaging any stores in which they found uh, products with Made in Germany printed on them, causing stores to have to dump these products or risk bankruptcy. Once the effects of this boycott began to be felt in Germany, the Germans began boycotting Jewish stores in the same way the Jews had done two stores selling German products in America. Then we move forward to 1934. In January, staunch Zionist Vladimir Jabotinsky gives an update on Samuel Antemeyer's boycott of Germany that I just quoted from. He said the fight against Germany has now been waged for months by every Jewish community on every conference in all labor unions and by every single Jew in the world. There are reasons for the assumption that our share of this fight is of general importance. We shall start a spiritual and material war of the whole world against Germany. Germany is striving to become once again a great nation and to recover her lost territories as well as her colonies. But our Jewish interests call for the complete destruction of Germany. Collectively and individually, the German nation is a threat to us Jews. Now we move forward to 1937. In his book Stalin, Trotsky or Lenin, George Marlin states if the if the tide of history does not turn toward communist internationalism then the jewish race is doomed in other words he's saying that the jews are totally in charge of communist internationalism and if the world does not turn to a new world order of jewish communist internationalism then the jewish race is doomed interestingly internationalism is an early incarnation of globalism that's my comments there and then we move on to same year professor a kulisher a a jewish professor calls for the genocide of all germans to be the priority of worldwide Jewry. when he states germany is the enemy of judaism and must be pursued with deadly hatred the goal of judaism today is a merciless campaign against all german peoples and the complete destruction of the nation we demand a complete blockade of trade the importation of raw materials stopped and retaliation towards every german woman and child same year this is two years before the second world war folks on april the 28th of uh, 1937 in an article published in the daily express 27 year old lord victor rothschild also demonstrates how prophetic he is when asked by reporter w hickey where he intended to live when the lease on his piccadilly home ran out he replied nowhere probably i just don't know not Till after the war anyway. As I said, it would be two and a half years before World War II would start, yet naturally, he already knew the war was coming. And then the last one that I've got for you, just getting to the correct page, uh, this is 1944, when Winston Churchill, who we know had Jewish ancestry, stated in the House of Commons on the 17th of November 1944 that he and his government, and I quote... Have been consistent friends of the Jews and constant architects of their future. So there you've got the links to communism. Peter talked about why were America, you know, basically bankrolling the Soviet Union. Well, communism is Jewish, as some of those quotes stated. And we know that the Soviet Union was started uh by money from um Oh, uh, you know know the name Peter. I don't know why my mind's gone blank, but he gave $20 million. uh, Shiff, Jacob Schiff, I think. Yeah, Jacob Schiff, I think it was. Uh, And, of course, he financed uh, that. So the Soviet Union and communism was a Jewish project from the off, and they weren't about to let it go uh, while this was going on. So clearly they were bankrolling it further. And we know the influence that they had on the American government. Uh, And I... I think that the question really answers itself. And finally, I don't have this in my book, but uh, I'm paraphrasing here. Of course, Patton, didn't he say something, General Patton, you know, that uh, in his diaries that we sloth, we went after the wrong enemy. We shouldn't have fought the Germans. We should have fought the Soviets. Back to you, Peter.
1: Yes, indeed. So the Patton papers and uh, all that General Patton uh, said about this is very relevant because General Patton is also a first-line, a front-line Combat general, he was he was a person who who fought on the ground. He wasn't a politician. At the end, he came to the conclusion we fought the wrong enemy. He said the Germans are the best race in Europe, and uh, uh, here we replaced them with a bunch of Mongolians, as he described the Soviets. And uh, uh, he said, in fact, the Germans were never our enemy, and the Russians have never been our friend. And uh, so. He, he came to see it that way. There's also Professor Anthony Sutton's book, Wall Street and the Bankrolling of the Bolshevik Revolution. I've, I've got that book in my uh, library right here and absolutely staggering to see how Leon Trotsky or um, Levi um, Bronstein, uh, as he was correctly named, who became Leon Trotsky, launched the Red Army. He was in uh, uh, the Bronx in Uh, New York when the revolution occurred he is is on exile from Russia and he took a whole lot of his pals from the Bronx and millions of dollars in cash and in gold uh, when he left America and considering he'd been unemployed uh, in America you sort of wonder where he got all that money from well we know um, he was bankrolled and he came back to to uh, Russia and helped uh, launch the revolution and he that's why right from the beginning they had leather coats for all the checker, what later became the NKVD and the KGB. They had Rolls Royces. They had the best of the most modern machine guns. They had armored tanks. Uh, uh, they had uh, armored trains. So uh, levy Bronstein or Leon Trotsky, with the millions that he got from American bankers, as documented by the Wall Street and bankrolling of the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, that, or uh, Professor Sutton wrote a later book called The Best Enemy Money Can Buy. and this just destroys the narrative that we have been brought up with that we've endlessly gotten the hollywood machine which has ha- produced how many films in the second world war giving a false impression and the way they have uh, slandered the germans and uh, the volunteers and slandered people like leon de grill do you know that leon de grill at the end of the second world war uh, belgium convicted him of treason in abstention, and condemned him to death by firing squad now to condemn someone to death in absentia is pretty um, unjust because surely uh, everyone should have his time in court and the innocence or proven guilty. And what had he done wrong? He had fought against communism, and he had done nothing against Belgium. And if two million Belgian citizens turned out to celebrate him, you—you uh, uh, you, uh, just in April 1944 then you'd think, well, what could have been treason if millions of uh, Belgians were hailing him as a great hero for what he had done on the Eastern Front fighting Bolshevism? Uh, so uh, how petty is that? And then they, they went after every one of his friends, executed them after the war. Uh, all of the uh, people who had fought in the well known um, regiments as, as volunteers were tracked down, imprisoned or killed if they got anywhere near Belgium. Uh, or if they were captured in the Eastern Front, and they had to escape. And fortunately, he has given sanctuary in Spain under Franco and citizenship there. Uh, just as a, uh, a an aside, an interesting aside, do you know that uh, uh, de Grille was, uh, while he was trained in law, he served as a journalist and as a politician before he became a combat soldier. Well, in Spain, he became a journalist again, and he uh, was personal friends uh, with the... Um, producer of the Tintin books. I don't know if you've ever seen the Tintin books. These um, uh, interesting that the Tintin books were based on, the Tintin characters, based on DeGrella. And uh, Tintin resembled DeGrella in appearance. And in an early comic, he's holding a newspaper with the same name uh, that DeGrella had worked for, uh, that newspaper. And uh, in fact, the the creator of Tintin uh, did admit that uh, he was inspired to do his comic strips by the adventures and the um, um, courage of um, De grill. And so this Belgian uh, comic strip character, Tintin, which I'm sure many of our listeners have, have read, um, it was actually based to a large extent and inspired by the uh, very courageous Belgian character, De Grelle. Thank you so
0: much, Peter. Fascinating information. Before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your website and how they can contact you?
1: Yes, so FrontlineMissionSA.org is the website, FrontlineMissionSA.org. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. That's the email. We're on social media, Frontline as well. And I should say that this book uh, the um, Eastern Front, Memoirs of a Waffen-SS Volunteer by Leon de Grille. It was published by the Institute for Historical Review. And so, well worth going to the Institute for Historical Review's website, and uh, you can see a review on the book and how to order the book. Uh, well worth it. There are a few interviews with Liam de Grille, um that's available to be viewed on uh, the internet, and uh, uh, somebody has taken just one of his chapters, Chapter 6, on uh, the Battle of Cherkassy, and uh, uh, put it with with actual combat footage, uh, video background, while literally just reads out the account of that one battle, just one chapter six, and that's an hour long uh, a video. Uh, you look for Cherkassy um, uh, on on uh, YouTube, and you will find it. Uh, Cherkassy, spelled C-H-E-R-K-A-S-S-Y, Cherkassy, and um, uh, that is staggering. Just to have a recounting with archival video footage of combat on the Eastern Front uh, backdrop to Leon de Grel's words describing uh, that one incredible battle. So thank you very much, Andrew. God bless you and uh, all of our listeners uh, as we try to recover the truth.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. Fascinating information, as always. You have been listening to Leon de Grel's real story of the Eastern Front peter and i'll be back with you at the same time next week i'll be back with you all tomorrow and until then folks have a wonderful day and bye for now